Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Gianna Melillo, Associate Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. The United States is now five months into its national vaccine rollout. Although hundreds of millions of doses have been successfully administered, the process has hit several snags along the way including, but not limited to, disparities in administration and the failure to collect racial data on nearly half of those vaccinated at the national level. But to achieve this feat, health systems have had to adjust to shifting vaccine eligibility requirements, ensure outreach efforts are successful, and combat misinformation within their communities, all the while scheduling appointments and making sure shots get into arms. In an effort to meet some of the logistical challenges of the rollout, Kairos works alongside healthcare organizations and provides search, scheduling, and data management solutions to help connect patients with the right care. On this episode of Managed Carecast, we speak with Chris Gervais, the Chief Technology and Security Officer at Kairos, and Dr. Aaron Jospi, Chief Medical Officer at Kairos. Thank you both so much for joining me today. To begin, can you introduce yourselves and give a brief overview of your work? Sure. Chris, would you like to go first? Sure. Sure. So my name is Chris Gervais. I serve as the Chief Technology and Chief Security Officer uh, at Kairos, where I help, um, you know, I think I have the best job in the company because I get to work with everybody and, and uh, you know, help inform our, our product and technology strategy, but also as we're, you know, continuing to grow, you know, looking at new areas for our growth strategies. And I'm Erin Jospi, and I have the pleasure of serving as the chief medical officer at Kairos. And like Chris, I also think I have the best job at the company, uh, again, because we are a clinically led uh, health IT company, I really do have the opportunity to interact across every division and ensure that we are um, sort of using the patient and provider experience as our true north. Uh, and so part of the team that I oversee is really committed to that engagement and ensuring that we're hitting that that just right Goldilocks spot of balancing those two perspectives. Great. And Dr. Jospi, my first few questions are for you. So as of today, all adults over the age of 18 should now be eligible for the COVID vaccine in the U.S., but data also show the country's swift rollout may have come at the expense of the more time-consuming and labor-intensive yet important objective of getting the vaccine to those who need it most. So how can patient-provider dynamics help change this trend? Or in other words, what can providers do to help address some of the factors that may be preventing patients from receiving the vaccine? Sure. So at um, at a very basic level, I think part of the joy of, of practicing medicine is the relationships that you can have with your patients and how patients look to you as a source of vetted information. What I think is incredibly important is where providers actually have the opportunity to provide that kind of vetted information um, in a non-judgmental way to really educate their patient and consumer community about why this is important. Um, I think the other piece that goes with that is acknowledging that providers and clinicians are not the 
the sole arbiters of that information. There's a lot of competing noise that's out there. Um, and there's also a lot of trusted advisors in a patient's life that can also help to educate. And I think it's those partnerships between clinicians and health systems and um, community resources that can play a really big role in making sure that their patients are making very informed decisions about what will work with them. Uh, it's not always enough uh, to just have someone that's in a position of leadership show that it's okay to get a vaccine and now everyone else will, will follow. I think that's actually part of what we're seeing in the military right now, given that a third are, are declining to be vaccinated as it is still optional uh, because the vaccines are considered to be in an experimental uh, approval state. So if it's not going to be the admirable that's getting uh, injected and then convincing others to do it, who does that community as a, a very um, illustrative slice of society look to as a trusted source of information who can sway their opinions? Uh, and it's really a matter of making sure that people are being spoken to in the way in which they deserve. Um, I also think that one of the issues is acknowledging the accessibility of the vaccine. So there's accessibility to vetted information, but then there's also the entire dynamic of um, how easy is it to get to this place? Can I use a bathroom if I'm there? Uh, do I understand the questions that are being asked of me? How friction-free uh, are providers and um, other sources of vaccine? Uh, how how friction-free can they really make that process to ensure that everyone is being approached on equal footing, that we are mindful of uh, equity and accessibility and really leading with that? Um, and so a long-winded answer to your question, Gianna, but I, I really think that providers are in a wonderful position to help with that. But they cannot be the only solution. Do you anticipate that the J&J news will create more vaccine hesitancy among hard-to-convince populations or reinforce the seriousness and transparency with which the government is monitoring these vaccines, in your opinion? I think it really depends on how that information is presented. So you can certainly create the context around the J&J &J vaccine that these are a small number of cases, but we take it seriously. And so because of that, we really want to make sure that you're getting the safest vaccine for you. And so we still have vaccines which are, are clearly proven to be efficacious and safe that we're still going to make available while we are investigating this. That's a very different story than um, we need to put an immediate stop to this. And, um, you know, this we didn't see this before. Right. Things that, um, you know, kind of belie a more trepidatious attitude towards this. I would say this is science at its finest. This is people really taking um, to heart the seriousness of making sure that we are safely approaching this. And if you do that um, in a way that resonates with your patient community, I think that really the sky is the limit in terms of reinforcing the trust that they will have that the processes in place are really intended to serve the patients and not, you know, pharma or somebody else's, uh, you know, hidden agenda. Um, but I will say that science doesn't always speak in the language that is most resonant, right? So if you tell me, uh, you know, or if you ask, 
uh, is there evidence of, of growing a tail if you, if you get this vaccine? And I say, well, there's no evidence of that. That doesn't really convince you that that was an issue. And in fact, it, it might concern you more because you thought it was a ridiculous, obvious answer of no. And being told there's no evidence of that doesn't really sound to the average individual like a clear and straightforward answer. And so I think we need to be very mindful of how we explain things where we are being truthful, but we're also speaking the language of the average layperson. Repercussions of the so-called digital divide have been made clear by the pandemic. So with continued discussions around telehealth's potential permanence, how can this divide be addressed so as not to leave out you know, those living in rural America, those lacking reliable internet access or computers, um, what role can health systems play in this effort? Yeah, so I think, first of all, it's just acknowledging that not everyone has digital accessibility. And for those that do have it, not everyone wants to use it. So, um, you know, making right now the primary way that one can access a vaccine through a digital experience only, of course, is going to create uh, a bigger divide that's there. So first off, it's just being mindful that um, you have a patient and consumer community that wants to engage in many different ways for many different reasons. And so what approaches are you going to take? How is your access center going to be staffed to be able to answer phone calls? Do you have a statewide central uh, you know, phone number to help guide people to what they need? Um, I think there's also a lot of investment that needs to be made in being mindful of how communities, uh, particularly more disadvantaged communities, can have equity in their uh, access to vaccines. So mobile strategies, using those community centers, um, again, leveraging the the um, respected authorities within a given community to help encourage people to go and get this. So all of those things are going to be important in traversing that digital divide um, by not making that the only way that you can get a vaccine. And of course, in tandem, we need to do a better job of um, closing the digital divide so that everybody who would prefer to use uh, that digital approach has access to it. And there are some really wonderful communities um, and health systems that are working on narrowing that. And of course, at the federal level, this new investment in, uh, in just digital architecture and infrastructure is going to be incredibly helpful in uh, el eliminating those digital deserts. But that's going to take time. And like I said, I know of some uh, health systems that are using different grants to help provide technology and help uh, offer better broadband um, to the communities that they serve. And I love stories like that because it's really showing how the health system itself is a part of the community. And, um, you know, I think when we cooperate that way, that's when we're really going to make a difference. But we can't be presumptuous that the only answer is to just give everybody access to digital. I think instead, it's really acknowledging that digital might not be the right answer for everybody for any number of reasons. Uh, and so we need to tackle that from, from all sides. Great. Thank you, Dr. Drosby. Um, Chris, moving on to you, can you just explain a little bit how Kairos works with health systems to scale their vaccine scheduling capabilities and meet some of the technical challenges of the vaccine rollout and give a couple of specific examples of this? 
Sure, sure. So we worked with our customers to help enable vaccine scheduling in the exact same way that we've helped them with other patient access and, uh, and, and scheduling projects that we do, which is great. So we were able to very easily add on uh, COVID vaccine um, scheduling uh, alongside other uh, programs that they already had running through the Kairos platform. Um, and so both we already, you know, for, for a lot of our customers, we had a pre-existing relationship and a collaboration in place already that helped them take advantage of this quickly. They also knew that we could deal, especially in the earlier days of standing up uh, vaccine scheduling, which we started to do in November uh, of 2020, that they knew that we could do so in a very like adaptable and flexible way, right? It was it's only until recently where there's been much more clarity into the sort of supply chain and deli- the consistent delivery of vaccine. And a number of our customers were getting ready to roll out vaccines, and then pulling back a bit because they weren't going to get the supply and, and so needed to make sure that they could not only effectively manage, well, how are they going to schedule for that, but also couple it with their outward facing activities for effect- communicating with their patients that they had some availability, um, that they had some inventory to give them. Um, so we started from that collaborative place that exists already um, where we're already integrated um, and then started to devise uh, a playbook with them to uh, really think about, okay, given in the earlier days where you're not getting a steady flow of vaccine, how do you want to communicate that you've got availability and to which subset of the populations do you want to get that to? And so we worked with a number of customers to do some different programs, right? Some of which were, were based initially on outbound uh, communication. So they knew that they had existing patients in a population and they wanted to reach them uh, and, and give them the ability to schedule quickly. And so that could be either through uh, an email that was sent to them. Uh, in some cases, they even did phone call outreach uh, or a text message because they've already got that type of platform established. They had a link in it that drew them back to their, um, you know, their their experience for booking an appointment. And I think like many uh, organizations, uh, as the vaccine was becoming available, you had something that was in incredibly high demand by everybody, and there was very limited supply. So we had to work with customers to establish the best pattern. Uh, so frankly, you weren't going to have the the concert ticket problem or the PlayStation 5 problem, right? Where there's only a few on the market, but everybody wants them. And it doesn't just bring down your website, right? When there's too much demand, it also impacts your business in other ways. So we wanted to work with our customers to do that. And that's where we, we laid in, you know, some of the technical capabilities to help them deal with the, the high degree of interest and traffic that comes with it. So, you know, we're a cloud native company. So we were able to scale out to be able to absorb a lot of traffic very easily. Uh, and then we also gave our customers different options for schedule. Some wanted it integrated into their EHR. Uh, others didn't. They wanted it actually standalone because they didn't want to subject their EHR to all of the pressure uh, that could be there. So we rolled out two different ways for our customers to um, enable patients to schedule both had different workflows in the back end, but for the patient on the front end, created that very easy to use, seamless experience, ask the right set of questions, uh, put their information in, and then confirm that they've got their spot, uh, you know, ready to go to come in and get that appointment booked. So at the end of the day, none of that would be possible without the deep level of collaboration we have with our customers. But it was also a good opportunity for both of us to learn uh, how to make sure that this insane, uh, insanely high demand for, you know, vaccine availability was going to be 
rolled out in a way that was going to meet the expectations of the consumers and also help the health systems navigate through the imbalance at the time of supply and demand. From your experience, what are some of the best practices for provider organizations to allow equitable vaccine access? Well, I think it it is very much coupled to the um, answer that Dr. Jospi gave, gave around as, as the health systems have had to navigate through the digital divide as well and think about the populations that they're serving. Um, but again, we saw some really great examples of our customers trying to make sure that they were the source of truth for trusted information, not just digitally, but through other channels, right? Which was very challenging because they're trying to roll out access to the vaccine during a time where a lot of patients were not seeing their provider face-to-face and having that face-to-face relationship. They may have been doing telemedicine or maybe they were communicating just via email or you know, patient messaging as part of their portal, which um, you know, sometimes can be lacking for uh, ways to roll that out. So most of our customers who were doing this were not trying to compete in a sense with the other vaccine offerings that were on the market, right? They weren't necessarily trying to be the primary location um, uh, that was in, you know, and, and I don't mean to say the word competition negatively, but with whatever was happening municipally or through other um, avenues that were being rolled out through, you know, uh, large companies like CVS. They're really trying to serve their patient population. And so they tailored their uh, approach to it, to that, knowing that they might not be able to, to get as much vaccine as they want to serve everybody. So I think some of the best practices were really rooted in understanding the scope and reach that they wanted to achieve, knowing that other mechanisms were coming online and understanding how they could best reach those populations not just digitally, but also through other types of outbound. If you were in that, you know, in that uh, patient population where you were maybe getting a visiting uh, caregiver, because that was, you know, something that in the fall started to come back for certain types of folks, arming them with the right information for those, you know, sensitive populations about how to appropriately get the vaccine. And just looking at a number of different ways, uh, you know, to distribute this and, and connect with patients to get the right information. And then I think the continued area of work will be around equitable access, right? And so the digital channel was uh, given, I think, some uh, precedence earlier on because it was one of the most easy to spin up and use, Um, but that does leave folks out. And so I think now we're going through that time where um, we're seeing our customers start to shift their role and their approach to driving more equitable access through all these different channels that uh, and mechanisms that Dr. Jospi covered earlier. You know, Chris, the the only other thing that I, I might ask, um, you know, our listeners to consider is uh, being able to inspect what you're expecting, as one of our colleagues likes to say, about equitable access. So um, according to KFF, the CDC right now only has racial and ethnic data on 55% of people who've received at least one vaccine. So how we can help people, help our health systems, um, help those schedulable entities also capture that information so that we can see the inroads that are being made and acknowledge where there's additional opportunity as well, um, I think is another really important part. So absolutely from an operational standpoint, from a uh, you know an, a, a provider of vetted information and content. Our, our health systems are absolutely undertaking that, but I would love to see them also make sure that they're capturing that data um, as part of the, the scheduling process itself if possible. Absolutely. 
Well, that leads perfectly into my next question. So as you said, data on race and ethnicity of patients receiving the vaccine is only available for around 50% of recipients at the national level. Could either of you speak on the repercussions this massive data gap has had and maybe will have for future national health emergencies? Absolutely. I'll weigh in and then I absolutely want Dr. Jospi to, to weigh in here. I think from one perspective, if we think about our ability to look at large scale populations and have more granular data that is balanced with confidentiality and privacy, um, you know, I think that's still a primary concern with some folks who decline to answer certain questions is really understanding, well, what are you actually going to do with my data? Because it's not often uh, it's not often discussed at that point, right? Why, why do I have to answer this? I think uh, hasn't necessarily been answered all that well as folks have been going through this process. But as we think about the ability to have that granular data that is going to allow more analysis, uh, both not just for um, understanding where the population sits today, but its ability to be combined with other types of data to drive new outreach, right? New ways of reaching certain populations that are going to have other types of comorbidities or likelihood for other co-occurring disease states to better anticipate their needs during the next type of, you know, hopefully we never have one, but there will be one next type of national health emergency to be in a place of more anticipatory approach rather than just purely reactive approach. I think is one of the reasons why I think having this data, again, protecting privacy and confidentiality at the same time is so important to make that to to upgrade the, the response. And, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning and all these types of things. Uh, that's a great use for the data at some point. But really, when you're talking about these, I think there's much more simpler things we could do with a with a broader set of more granular, uh, uh, or sorry, a wider set of more granular data to just make the approach into uh, uh, engaging the populations much, much more informed. Dr. Jospi, please, please weigh in. I don't know that I can add much more, Chris. I think that's that's such a thoughtful answer. You know, I think at the end of the day, this has shown a great light on our lack of um, investment in public health and, and public health initiatives. And so um, using this time that will absolutely be limited to leverage the things that we have learned to make this a more efficient and effective process moving forward has to be part of of our national approach here. Um, and yes, states will need to invest in this. There needs to be a national approach to this as well. It needs to be coordinated and thoughtful. Um, but I think so much of the scrambling, just even how we approached contact tracing, um, you know, we were all mm -hmm. learning on the fly. And this is in no way to, to cast um, you know, any kind of a negative light on the efforts that were made. Everyone was is and was absolutely trying their best. Um, but there's such an opportunity to make this better uh, and to make sure that we're not relying on, you know, an individual sense of responsibility to contribute to make this better. And instead, we actually have true processes so that it doesn't require heroic efforts um, to ensure that everyone in the country is being approached in the, in the same way that they need um, and that it's tailored to how those different communi communities will need it to make sure that they're getting the, the care that they need, that we understand the impact that's being had and where we can continually invest in those improvements. Mm -hmm. And just one, one more point there I think that is important is 
during these times, we did see, you know, again, with contact tracing, we also saw with, you know, again, some attempts at broader scale exposure notification. So those might not have been successful as we wanted, but they were worthy experiments to run and learn from. And I think, again, when you're trying to respond to such a critical uh, national and global public health crisis, it's often hard to think about running an experiment during that time. But it's it's actually, if you can do it in, the, in a controlled manner, it's actually really important. Because there wasn't a lot of uptake, for instance, of the exposure notification, there was a lot of learning just in that. That wasn't a success. But there's a lot of learning there that I think we can roll forward that does roll into this, you know, if you could get more data, but also how can we make, um, you know, how can we start to tune these approaches going forward? Because the idea was maybe good. The execution might not have been there yet. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I think, again, the, the only sin would be to not learn from what we've done yes. um, because we don't want to, you know, recreate the, the mistakes of the past. There should be efficiencies. There should be learnings um, that we can really incorporate into our approaches moving forward. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm really hopeful, actually, that we will see a new investment in public health and public education that, um, you know, hadn't been there before when it comes to uh, both prevention and containment of, of illness. Well, those are all the questions I had prepared, but is there anything we didn't touch on that either of you would like to include, or do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? Uh, so I think from my perspective, what we've just gone through, you know, we, we talk about this uh, internally a lot, you know, and you see it, folks kind of, you know, starting to resume uh, normal, you know, normal activities in this vaccinated, you know, period of time. I think what we're all learning is not that we're trying to go back to normal, but that we've incorporated net new ways or accelerated you know, uh, ways to engage with patients from multiple angles around their care that now need to become the normal, um, that we now need to be able to fit together into more uh, cohesive offerings, but that people got used to maybe, you know, being up at two in the morning and scheduling their vaccine. Not that you want people up at two in the morning, but they could start to do more on their own terms to a certain degree. And I think that is a, a, an area that we need to continue to help uh, drive forward for the patient. If we put the patient at the center, how to best meet their needs, meet them where they're at, and provide those wraparound services, some digital, some physical, uh, and, and otherwise, that are going to help them achieve their care goals, not just now, but over time. Yeah, I think it really comes down to how um, health systems and providers can truly enable patients to be able to access the information they need, the physical spaces that they need, the resources that they need, and to do it in a way that um, is not just one size fits all. That I think we've got so much momentum right now, Gianna, on um, both being increasingly innovative with what um, digital can provide to, to patients, but I think it's also making us realize there are so many different people and so many different aspects of a health system that touch a patient along their journey. And it's really exciting to see that ongoing investment that way. And frankly, appreciation for all of those individuals who help contribute to what a positive experience could be. Um, so yes, getting everybody a, a jab in the arm is a goal, uh, but there are a lot of other goals around self-care enablement that I'm hoping that this will kind of turbocharge.
both health systems and, and providers and patients embracing of. Well, thank you both so much for taking time to speak with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Gianna. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.